ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas and hello, everyone. Welcome back to this Christmas special edition of the Silver Screen podcast. Uh, if you haven't been keeping up with our socials and things, as always, this is your announcement that this week we're going to be reviewing the movie Die Hard. Uh, and we will be figuring out once and for all, yeah, right, whether it can be called a Christmas movie. But, you know, it's on my Christmas special, so that's maybe a hint. Uh, but I can never do these reviews alone. I'm always joined by at least one guest. Uh, and I'm joined by a guest returning from my um, Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast this week, all the way from Spain. Special guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm DK. I'm a part-time author, as, as best I can be anyway. And uh, just generally an all-round nerd. Awesome, awesome. And uh, we've been having a little discussion about sort of uh, not being able to get to the cinema and stuff lately. So I know you're a bit of a cinephile. <laughs> so that's good. And yeah. uh, we, we do, uh, we have confirmed we both recently watched Die Hard, in your case, very recently. <laughs> and, yeah, about, uh, about 30 yeah. minutes ago now. Awesome, awesome. And uh, so uh, that seems like a good place to start then. So what is your history with uh, Die Hard? Is this the first time you've seen it or have you oh. seen it lots? And when was the first time you saw it? Can you remember? <laughs> I can't remember the specific, you know, the specific first instance that I watched it, but it must have been not long after it came out on video. Mm. I I wasn't a big, I mean, I like the sci-fi epics and I like the fantasy and all that kind of thing, but I was never that big on action movies. The whole Schwarzenegger, Stallone thing, unless they were set in, you know, situations that I liked, like the sci-fi setting. Like Total Recall and things like that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I loved that, and even the fir the the first couple of Rocky films. I know it's not sci-fi; it's I mean, it's fantastical, obviously, but uh, yeah, it's kind of yeah, wish fulfillment but, fantasy, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> but when it came to things like Rambo and Commando, it, they just left me cold. I uh, mm. the the idea of of these big action action heroes just walking through explosions without a scratch, they just didn't interest me. But when I saw Die Hard. I saw Bruce Willis, and at that point, Bruce Willis was, well, it was kind of his first big film, really. Yeah, and, it was, yeah. Yeah, and, and I thought, okay, this is an action hero I can kind of get behind because he literally has the crap kicked out of him throughout this film, and he shows. He doesn't oh, just, he goes through it. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't just brush it off and come out with some really stupid quip, like, no. I don't know, Commando, and I'm going to get such a lot of hate for saying that, but I could just never take to Commando with Schwarzenegger. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm similar in that I like the kind of sci-fi and fantastical stuff. And I'm a fan of some of the dumb stuff. Um, you know, I'm a big Schwarzenegger fan, but fully acknowledge that, yeah, films like the likes of Commando or, I know it's not Schwarzenegger, but the likes of Universal Soldier and stuff that get a lot of love. And I'm always just like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen them once. I never really need to watch them ever again, you exactly. know. It's not something I would, I would, I would, you know, if someone made me on, on Pain of Death, I would sit down and watch Universal Soldier again. The sequels... Mm -hmm. Probably not, but yeah. the first one, yeah. But it, I, I just, I just never took to it. But when I watched Die Hard, everyone, everyone in that production seemed to be at the top of their game, and I just mm. became pretty obsessed with it. I ended up getting the video games and you know, <laughs> the box set. Well, uh, I'm not going to get into too much detail yet because we'll give our full review at the end and stuff. But um, yeah, I'm the same. I was kind of, I was kind of cold with action movies, and then. One of the ones that changed my mind for me links to Die Hard because it's the same director, which was the film Predator. Um, oh, which yeah, I was like, oh, this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was like, this I can get on board with because you can kind of tell it's well-directed and it's got obviously that sci-fi element, but that's not overpowering. 
Um, and yeah, I just plus it, it's just so quotable, and we all kind of walked around school, which was probably too early to be watching it, saying things like, "Oh, what's wrong, Dylan? Pushing too many pencils and stuff like yeah. that." Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, when they shake hands with a friend, you could have arms like Carl Weathers and Schwarzenegger. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Carl Weathers at the start of the movie, not halfway through. Spoiler well, alert. No, no. Want... Yeah. <laughs> shake hands at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so. Um, yeah, as I say, I'm the same. I came to Die Hard kind of late in the in the grand scheme of things in terms of like action movies and stuff that I'd seen because by that point I'd seen like Predator and a few others and um, I hadn't really seen it all that much but I had seen it like on TV like, in the background a couple of times and I definitely did have it on DVD at one point. Um, but I bought the Blu-ray years ago and yesterday for this podcast is the first time I'd actually sat and watched the Blu-ray start to finish. Oh, wow. So... Um, as I say, I had seen the movie, but that was the first time I'd really have been like, right, I'll focus on this and give it my undivided and, and really watch it. And uh, yeah, so I have some thoughts, but <laughs> um, I wanted to start out with a little bit of history regarding the movie, because I think it's kind of weirdly fascinating how the film came about, yeah. um, which uh, in case uh, any of our listeners don't know, um, it was basically a sequel to a book that already existed. Um, it, the book, I think, called is, is called something like Who Goes There? Uh, by Roderick Thorpe, um, and it's a sequel to a book called The Detective, which was made into a film starring Frank Sinatra. And because of that, it means that first refusal for this film was offered to a 71-year-old Frank Sinatra, which I just find to be hilarious. There's some kind of alternate universe somewhere where a 71-year-old uh, sort of aging crooner is playing the, the version of John McClane. <laughs> I, I would pay real money to see that. That, was, that just must be phenomenal. <laughs> Just like we'll, we'll come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Uh, but obviously, uh, this, the seventy-one-year-old Sinatra passed on on his option. So, and then a, a lot of changes were made from the book to the um, the film Die Hard that it ultimately became. Uh, not least because the book is incredibly depressing, and uh, the director and screenwriters wanted to move away from that and make a more fun action movie. Which is, I think, one of the things that you can that stands out for the film. It's it's definitely violent, but it never seems cynical yeah. with it. I was shocked to discover that, like I said, uh, the the character that became John McClane, who's got a different name, obviously in the book, um, but he goes out to New York not to visit his wife, but to see his daughter, yeah. who's like a a really struggling drug addict, who's <laughs> you know going through hard times and stuff, and uh, it's kind of uh, it, it's very different, and the fact that it. Without wanting to spoil it, in case anybody does want to read the novel, um, it doesn't necessarily end very happily for the for the uh, the protagonist. So uh, that it became this film is very weird, and I think it owes a lot to um, what's his name again, John McTiernan, um, who said that he would he agreed to do the film only if it was more lighthearted and less of the kind of mean spirit and the, the anger or whatever that um, you would normally find. Hang on, I've got the actual quote here. He agreed to direct on the condition the film would have some joy and not can simply contain mean, nasty acts seen in other terrorist films, um, which is why the terrorists were kind of changed to be just basic robbers, I think, ultimately yeah. as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, so um, I think all those changes really did help to make the film a, a lot better. Um, but the other thing, and this kind of ties in a little bit to the debate about is Die Hard a Christmas movie, um, is that the studio basically were wanting to ride a high uh, of like action movies and stuff that were big at the time and wanted a, a huge summer blockbuster. 
Um, and the film was released in July of, I think, 1988. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, it was it was intended to be that summer kind of big action movie. Um, but again, we'll get into it as I go through uh, in chronological order, as I always do, because <clears throat> one thing I did do, uh, apologies if it gets annoying, but I did do something called Christmas Watch, where I tried to make a note of everything in the film that was uh, Christmas related to, to point out all the instances when it becomes important. And there's quite a lot, you know, so... <laughs> It wasn't until today when someone walked in the room when I was watching the thing and said, this is a Christmas movie, she's called Holly, and then walked back out oh, again. I never, that literally never even occurred to me. Yeah, yes, no, exactly. Not me. I've been watching it all these years, and he, he never twinked. Wow, that is, a, that is something that I don't think I've even ever heard come up in these arguments, but that might be the <laughs> mic drop moment right there. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Um, right. So as I said, I'll go through the, the film. I've got like sort of chronological notes and obviously I'll, I'll just uh, banter back and forth and, and shoot some questions your way. And if you've got anything you want to kind of interrupt me or say about them, then, you know, the, the drill. So, uh, yeah, sure. that's great. Uh, so, yeah, the film starts with kind of uh, introducing the character of John McClane and he's nervous flying and white knuckling it. Um, it's basically you get the immediate setup as to why he's going to end up in bare feet later, which is one of the many. Uh, you know, layers of crap that he has to get through to uh, to navigate the situation, which is is quite cleverly set up in its own way. Um, and the scene itself is good because it gives you all the explanation you need that he is, you know, he's a cop, but he's not like superhuman and not scared of anything. And uh, he's been a cop for 11 years, but he's from New York traveling to LA and it gets kind of all of that out of the way, which I like. Yeah. Um, uh, Christmas watch number one here. Uh, the teddy bear looks like it's being wrapped as a gift, and on the plane there is a definite announcement of "Merry Christmas" uh, as they leave. Um, as we cut straight back to the uh, the Nakatomi Plaza party, there are obviously Christmas trees all over it. Uh, the speech uh, definitely has Christmas wishes, and Holly makes multiple references to Christmas while Alice is hitting on her, including pointing out that it's Christmas Eve. So <laughs> um, they're really hammering uh, it home. At this point, yeah, I was quite surprised. I was like, wow, they're really starting off like, okay, wow, we know. <laughs> it's it's definitely Christmas Eve. We got it. Um, but, yeah, I also like that that kind of – it gives you the good setup of um, Ellis's character, that he's kind of creepy and, uh, you know, even though he knows that Holly is kind of married, he's uh, kind of hitting on her and, and trying to pull her that way. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Um, and also this is the first instance of the film's sort of uh, slightly wry humour because <laughs> – when they're out of nowhere, it has nothing to do with the film, but talking about, like, do you think it'd be all right to give this baby a little nip of, of alcohol to get it off to sleep? And Holly's reply of, it looks like that baby's ready to 10 bar. Yeah. <laughs> it's apropos of nothing, but it's still pretty funny, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, the, the one thing that did kind of throw me with this film, but it, it, it took me a while to realize the reason why is that. The um, like Holly and the kids having a, a Spanish maid, even though played by an Italian actress, because I was like, this is hardly an everyman sort of you know situation. But yeah. then it be it becomes apparent that that's the whole point of the division between Holly and John is that she's like become successful and and a bit more uh, you know rich than he is, really, and yeah. she's living a, a high life that he's not necessarily accustomed to. And maybe there's a little bit again, many many film critics have made uh, sort of studies better than I could about like this this film could be about the traditional role of masculinity and feeling emasculated by a woman taking the position of power and basically him having to reclaim his masculinity through violence and uh, and saving the damsel I guess in that way and yeah I can see it if, if you want to see it that way fair enough but uh, 
yeah, um, it was just weird that that all came to me just from that one sort of couple of setup type scenes, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember all of this now. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, that last little bit of setup then is just uh, as as um, John meets Argyle and points out that yeah, it's the first time he's driven in a limo, but it's also the first time that Argyle has drove one. Um, yeah. Which I don't really necessarily love the character of Argyle. He doesn't seem to have a ton of a point in the movie. Oh, you're Although... kidding. He's my favorite character. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, why is that then? <laughs> I, used, I used to hate him. Mm -hmm. But as, as, as I watched it more and more, every time he's on screen, I just, I love it. He exudes Christmas to me. <laughs> well, that is true. He is the, uh, he's Mr. Christmas because, and again, Christmas watch, I'll throw them all out at once here. It's him that plays uh, Run DMC's Christmas in Hollis uh, on the radio and points out that it is Christmas music. He's the one having a little mini Christmas party in the limo, and we'll get to it at the very end, but he's he gives the kind of sign-off line of the film, which re-emphasizes that it is Christmas. So, yeah, I can see that, but to, I think I just got more and more frustrated that he was just completely oblivious to what was going on for the bulk of the movie, you know? I like that. I can identify with that because most of the time <laughs> I feel oblivious to what's going on around me, so I, I can <laughs> with him as a character that's fair enough and i do kind of love his sarcastic shut up to the teddy bear when he's feeling judged at the yeah. and a midway point yeah well fair enough i could i could, I could dig it yeah <laughs> i get this is uh apropos of nothing but i just found it amusing that when they're talking about all of the kind of mod cons that the limo has and stuff and argyle's like you wouldn't believe it man it's got like vhs <laughs> like, oh wow <laughs> top of the ridge <laughs> You can watch a VHS tape while you're driving. Yay. <laughs> uh, one uh, kind of sort of film nerd type note that I made at this point, because it's kind of, it, it comes up a lot here is that I love the cinematography of the movie, the way that everything's like lit and the scenes all look like oh. they're, they're happening almost like at dusk and there's a golden hour kind of feel to it. It is um, very, very beautiful to look at. It is surprisingly for an action movie, as I say, the way that it's, uh, it's filmed in the way that it's given that that mood, I guess, is uh, is really cool. I think part of that is because one of the editor slash cinematographers was um, a guy called Jan de Bont, who became a director, yeah. uh, who later went on to direct Speed, weirdly enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I had read somewhere that this is, uh, it was on this film that he got the idea for the opening of Speed because of the elevator scene, uh, which is why it's, you know, similar type idea. Um, but yeah, I think those kind of Eastern European sensibilities make it look a little bit kind of, it, it's very cleverly edited in that way that it keeps moving and it just looks sumptuous to look at. So definitely worth knowing. I think the editing is just on point throughout this entire mm. movie. And I don't think it ever gets any recognition. And I think the way it's been edited and the direction is fantastic. The, the, the script just sparkles for an action film. Anyway, it mm. sparkles to me. The acting is great. But nobody ever really pays attention to the editing. And I think it's edited perfectly for an action film. There's just there's just no let up. Once the initial setup is out of the way, it just it just clicks. Yeah, I completely agree. Um there is some stuff, but you kind of have to go hunting for it because I did when I was doing research for the episode. I came across a few, like, as I said, critic type essays that are written about how they completely agree with you, basically. The editing doesn't get enough recognition and how, as I said, Jan de Bont was you know incredibly skilled and, and a huge part of why this film moves the way it does and, and feels the way that it does and uh yeah the, the credit is out there but you have to go really looking in sort of film geek circles i think for it but definitely yeah. worth noting yeah uh, awesome 
Um, yeah, so as I said, we, we get like set up about uh, fr from the conversations with Argyle that there's marriage trouble between Holly and John. And again, it's clever exposition because it's not like it stops the story dead. It's, it's you know, it melds with the character stuff, which I like. Yeah, uh, and like they kind of get it all out of the way in the first 20 minutes or so. So then they do. Yeah. It's apart from, you know, that the scene between John and uh, Al later on when he's in mm. the bathroom. Uh, yeah. I, it just never lets up. Yeah. Uh, there's one scene that I thought was a little bit kind of, it's stopped the pace a little bit at the very start, uh, which I may as well mention now. And it's basically when John and Holly are having the little argument in the, what looks like a hotel room, but it's obviously in the, the plaza somewhere. Um, and it was just kind of like, for me, it just went on a bit too long and it was reiterating stuff we knew, but at the same time, I guess we needed it so that we could see that they were still, in that place, I guess. Yeah, kind of prickly towards each other, especially yeah. when uh, Holly's assistant comes in and, you know, he's, he's kind mm. of a bit dismissive but dismissive of her. And yeah. uh, it does, you are right in that in that sense, it does seem to drag on and it is retreading. But I guess you have to have some interplay between, you know, John and Holly in yeah. order to get their relationship. Otherwise, it won't have that setup when eventually... Uh, you know. I think yeah, the the, the it, it seems like it's not difficult to get to, but it's a little bit like oh, this has slowed things a little bit. But I think you're right; it pays off toward the end of the movie, and that's why it's there. So I can understand from a filmmaking point of view why you wouldn't lose it. Um, so again, I can I can dig it. <laughs> uh, but in terms of um, sort of clever exposition to get things across, I love as well how it's part of the plot that he looks on the computer to find Holly, and that's how he finds out that she's using a maiden name. Um, yeah, because. That could so easily have been like something that would take forever to explain or become a huge thing, but it's done so sort of just quickly enough to have an impact and to so that you can notice it without feeling like, well, why did you drop that on us there kind of thing? Um, and it's also in he, in that same scene at the lobby that they uh, point out that the party are the only ones left in the building, which is kind of convenient for the audience to know because otherwise she a number of uh, hostages and casualties would have been ridiculous for her. the charts. Yeah, for a multi sort of uh, level building that they're in, it would have been ridiculous. But uh, well, you and do kind of wonder if if they knew that the party was going to be there, or if like Gruber and company just expected there to be nobody, though, which is weird. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, yeah. referring back to the the you know cutting edge technology of VHS, the fact that he goes into a, an office block and he looks something up on a computer, and back then you were just thinking, whoa, this is a modern building. You know, this this is almost yeah. futuristic. Yeah, but then you look at the computer now, and it is it's so dated. It's like one of the old. Uh, <laughs> but at the time, as you said, it would be. It's the stock, the stock sound effects that they had for computers all throughout that decade. I don't know if you if you picked up on that, but it's the same noises computer, the same noises on the computer that they're using Superman three. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I didn't, but I just the thing it reminded me of was the the movie The Thing, which has the really supposedly advanced like computer chess game, but it now looks like. Something you wouldn't oh, give a toddler, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> you think, oh, my God, he's on a, he's on a Spectrum or an Amstrad. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But uh, No, it's, it's cool because, as you say, it does kind of get the point that it's supposed to be, a, you know, an advanced um, 
futuristic building and again that's one of the other themes that some critics have identified as the sort of railing against modernization and against globalization and people sort of foreigners coming over and you know there's even the hint in the movie isn't there of uh, we're flexible we didn't get you with Pearl Harbor but we did with tape decks and <laughs> Japan yeah, sort of uh, yeah. taking over the the business side of, of American life so again yeah, I can that, see there is that quite undercurrent where John John asks uh, Takagi if if you know, he didn't know that they had Christmas in Japan. Mm, exactly. And then the fact that even the, the villains are kind of the German, basically, which is like, you know, who fear of foreigners and we're still a little bit nervous about the whole World War situation, even 40 years after at this point and whatnot. So um, I think there's a little bit of that. But then, as you say, it's just it's a question of wanting but but then again, the, that's, I would argue they're equally critical of kind of the American way of life in this particular decade and, and time because through the character of Ellis, the way that he's just completely, you know, he, he does an awful lot of coke and he's yeah. just arrogant and, and ultimately ends up foolishly getting killed. Spoilers. But, but they, uh, they do have those, those American stereotypes on when Hans later on in the movie is talking about, you know, John Wayne riding off into the sunset with oh, Kelly. Yeah. Definitely, we'll get there for sure, because that, again, you're absolutely right, and that's the point, isn't it, about that could feed into the, is this about recapturing that A, masculinity, and B, sense of, like, American pioneering Old West spirit or whatever, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just starts <laughs> off as a character very flawed, and as you said, with the airplane scene right at the start, they instill hmm. that in you, he, he doesn't just... It's not. It doesn't start off like a Bond film or any of these other action sequences where he's in some kind of foreign country shooting things up, you know, walking no. away from an explosion. It, it shows right at the start he's a very flawed character. He's divorced from his wife. His, his wife's trying to keep a distance from him. He's scared of flying. You know, he's, he's kind of an outsider. Yeah, absolutely. And I fully, I, I do think it is worth noting that, that I, I know I kind of skipped over it, but the film, it's kind of brave and unexpected to start with the, the character literally terrified. I mean, it's, he is, it, it focuses on his knuckles as he's gripping the seat. And it's like, it's a, it's a surefire way of pointing out, yeah, this guy's just mortal. He's kind of an everyman. He's not like superhuman. Nothing phases him. The guy's scared to fly even, you know? So, yeah. I think um, that played into the strength of Bruce Willis at the time, hmm. because they weren't sure about him as a leading man. I mean, I'd, 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 I was a fan because I watched him moonlighting, hmm. but I mean, apart from a couple of uh, earlier movies, he never really made it big. But if you compare how he's portrayed in that and then imagine somebody else likes Stallone or Schwarzenegger, mm. you would not buy the whole thing no. about, oh, he's scared of flying. You just, you, you'd automatically taken out of it because they, they, in, in their films previous to this, they never really showed any weakness. So if they're sat yeah. there gripping the arms of the airplane, you wouldn't buy it as much as this kind of scrawny guy really that for the most part is unknown other than as, as i say to people that's watched him in in moonlight you know maybe seen the the movie blind date yeah completely um and yeah i did kind of read up about that and you're absolutely right like i said willis wasn't really he'd done one film and it had more or less bombed <clears throat> and he was known as a tv actor because of, of moonlighting the the kind of rom-com and you know at that at that stage tv actors making it in hollywood were failing basically i mean uh, there was attempts by the likes of shelly long and uh, a couple of others to to break out of being tv stars into movies and they just weren't happening um yeah. and the fact that it, this was you know this was 20th century fox a big like summer blockbuster attempt and they hired 
what was effectively a virtual unknown and gave him a ridiculously high sort of for the time payment, uh, which I think shocked a lot of people. People were kind of, as I was reading about it, people were genuinely sort of freaked out by this and kind of, um, he was given, let's say, $5 million for the role, comparable to like most other big names at, at the time. Yeah. Um, but the the brass at 20th Century Fox said, well, part of it was because you needed that everyman persona, which feeds into what you were saying. Um, but I do re remember reading and, and uh, found it a bit odd that like the, the marketing and everything around the film changed because people weren't really enamored with Willis as an idea, and that's why you no, have the posters. they tried to hide him as much as possible from the posters. <clears throat> yeah, I was going to say the, the posters that sort of... The studios say that it's because the plaza is as much a character as, as anyone else, but they showed, like, the tower and no actor and Bruce Willis's name in kind of small font. Um, but then it is, you almost kind of track what happened with this film through the marketing, because as soon as it hit big and Bruce Willis is getting that huge response, all of a sudden his, his face appears in the posters again. And yeah. uh, <laughs> all of a sudden they're selling it on like Bruce Willis's face as big as the tower and everything. So yeah, it's a fascinating that look at that. Yeah. yeah, now they're selling <clears> movies on him and he's only in it for about five minutes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's one of the biggest movie stars, arguably, whether whether or not he behaves like it necessarily at times. But uh... yeah, yeah. But <clears throat> enough said about that. Yeah, we'll not get into that. I'm not Kevin Smith. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll hit back onto the film with the Christmas watch part, whatever we're up to now. Uh, I think it's Argyle starts whistling jingle bells uh, and we cut back to the Christmas party. So again, re-emphasizing everything. Uh, they point out that there are, again, it's it's just said in kind of almost background dialogue, but you hear that there's several floors of the building still under construction, which is going to become important for improvised weapons and things later on, you know? So um, I think that's an important thing that they drop on us, uh, but you have to listen for it. Uh, let's see. And then, as I said, you, you encounter Ellis and know that he's a bit of a jerk and he's kind of caught out uh, snorting coke from, from a desk in his office and has the nervous reaction to, oh, this is Mr. McLean, he's a cop kind of thing. You know? <laughs> uh, and then, like you said, it's that scene of I didn't know they had Christmas in Japan and whatever, which, again, Christmas watch, mention of Christmas, and you do see a little uh, Santa ornament on the shelf behind them. So, uh, yeah, and then, of course, you get what, what I've uh, labelled here, Chekhov's Rolex, which is that Ellis is like, Holly, show him your Rolex. It's, oh, it's so yeah. cool. And he's, I'm sure I'll see it later. And I had no idea how many times I've seen this one, at least four or five times. And yet every time I forget that that is actually like a crucial plot point at the yeah. very end. <laughs> it, it wasn't until I watched it, I watched it today. And I, I remember that he takes the watch off at the end. But when he mm. brings it up, I'm sat, I, even now I'm sat there thinking, what's that line for? Yeah, <laughs> now you know. It blindsides me every time. I don't know if that's my. Uh, rapidly approaching senility or what but i never pick up on no that. i'm the same i mean when i was making the notes i was like oh I, I suppose this scene is to show the increasing like tension of the class divide that's developed between holly and john and whatever and maybe it is on a thematic level but ultimately it's just more about you no know, it's setting up that she's wearing a rolex so that he can unclip it later and save her, yeah. You know? so yeah fair enough um i, I do love and this is a, a bit of praise for I guess McTiernan and maybe the editing as well that um the tension of the camera just slowly trailing the vehicles and, and people and stuff so you're looking suspiciously as an audience member on everything uh, and then it's just still blindsides you with the sheer shock of the guy like making basketball references and stuff and then just pulling out a gun and shooting the guy in the lobby yeah. out of nowhere and it is it's so shocking it's like a blood spray and everything and you're like wow this is Yikes! <laughs> what just happened? I'm I'm caught completely. I was nervous, and yet I'm still somehow caught off guard. And uh, 
expert direction. I mean, films try and fail to do that kind of thing all the time. So kudos to them for that. And, yeah, uh, it gets away with how callous some of the these these robbers yeah. actually are. <clears throat> yeah, because there's a kind of there's almost a dark humor, as I said, the way that like the guy's talking about basketball and he's like, Oh, he takes the shot, and then the guy shoots him in the head, and he's like, Oh, yeah, done, and whatever. And I was like, Wow, this yeah, is... just leaps over and kicks him out of the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, but again, another directing note. I love that you are in no doubt immediately who the leaders of the terrorists are, because firstly, Alan Rickman's screen presence, even when he doesn't talk, is just immense. And secondly, the camera makes a point of lingering and tracking Hans Gruber the entire way through. So you're like, oh, yeah, this is the guy to watch this dude. So, yeah. Um, one thing I didn't love, just to be slightly critical for a second, is the music in the movie. I just thought it was very generic, like, now we're ramping up tension. Now this is supposed to be this. And, uh, yeah, just... I used to think that, but I, I paid a lot more attention to it today because mm. I wanted to pick up how prevalent the the Ode to Joy motif was throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what it what in, instead I picked up on other little things like uh, I don't know if you noticed, and this uh, again enforces the uh, the Christmas theme of the movie to me mm. is it it goes into a subtle uh, walking in a winter wonderland. Mm. I did. Um, I, I wasn't sure if that was just me hearing things, but I'm pleased that you've confirmed that because, yeah, I, I thought that. And then I was like, oh, maybe it's just a coincidence. But again, as I was reading about it after watching the film, I did read that there's a lot of use of like sleigh bells and stuff in the film, which is apparently to undercut the traditional meaning because it's always at like the more tense or uh, terrorist or, or bad guy focused scenes and stuff. And I was like, oh, see, I wasn't even picking up on that, really. It was just mainly moments where I was like, yes, I get it. I'm supposed to be tense here. And the, the uh, there's a climactic moment at the end. I think it's when Hans is about to fall, where it just gets really like aggressively, just blaring the same two notes at you over and over again. And I was like, "This is just distracting. I don't love this." Yeah, but, uh, it does. It does hammer it home a little too much sometimes. Yeah, there is, absolutely. There but, is one bit which I had to double check. The, I mean, the bit. Of, I know we're flashing forward. It's just to discuss mm, the Michael Kamen situation. But yeah, the yeah, go for it. Where uh, Alexander the Alexander Godunov character comes out with the gun after you think he's you know he's always yeah, dead, the very end. and Al ends up shooting him. That entire section of music, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the work of uh, James Horner. Yes, from Star Trek mainly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that could have been ripped from Ratha Khan. It's that same kind of motif in that movie and later on in Aliens. It's weird that you say that because um, parts of this movie are actually from uh, an unused first draft for Aliens, <laughs> the actual uh, music of it I was reading somewhere. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's why you were getting that sense. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. I think it's because they shared the same studio because obviously it's not the same composer necessarily or anything. But, yeah, because they were kind of on file, it was a first draft that was considered it wouldn't suit the tone or it wasn't good enough for the composer for Aliens. So, And it's not everything, but there's huge parts where it says, if you listen out, it's from the unused uh, first draft of the, the score to Aliens. And some of it you can hear in the Aliens trailer, apparently, the first trailer. Oh, obviously, right. so yeah, like, okay, I, fair I, enough. I, I picked up on it and I, and I had to go and double check because he said Michael Kamen and I thought I wonder if James Horner had anything to do with it but I couldn't mm. I couldn't find anything where he was credited so it's interesting to know that thanks 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's been changed enough that you wouldn't necessarily have to. And like I said, it's because, you know, it's, it's all 20th Century Fox IP and whatever else. But yeah, it's just one of those weird things. Because I'm not nearly musically gifted enough to notice these kind of things. But there'll be people listening that are um, who would be like, oh, and, you know, I, I'm sure I heard this. And so, yeah, definitely worth noting, 100%. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, the, only, yeah, the only reason um, I know it is I used to collect uh, soundtracks and Rattakan and Aliens, which mm. were the more, the ones that I had on my CD. Oh. Well, it was vinyl back then. I had on my player most of all. So when I, I hear something uh, like that, it just yeah, I can't disagree with you. They're two of my favorite soundtracks and movies as well. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliant, excellent. Uh, awesome. Uh, so yeah, getting back to the film again, keeping up with the pace and everything. It's shocking to me how how quickly it gets into like John hearing the gunshots and the carnage and everything, and we're straight into action. And there's even a shot of like a topless woman. That um, is it a hooker or a, a member of the the staff? Who knows? You know, having to <laughs> quickly cover up and run off. And yeah, the camera work all of a sudden goes for a neck, and there's just blood and noise and everything. And I was like, wow, this is. It's kind of weird how, how shockingly it's just like from calm to chaos, I guess. But I liked it. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it does lull you into a little bit of a... I mean, you've seen it time and time and time again since then. But it lulls hmm. you into a false sense of security. And maybe that's why they included that scene with you know between Holly and, and John. And maybe yeah. to give you that impression that it was going to be like that. So that when the action does kick in, it's all the more shocking. Especially, as we said, with the callousness of it. Yeah, I think, yeah, because we'd already had the one scene where that had happened, I think as well, I was kind of conditioned to be like, oh, that's the big shock moment. And then the film sort of calmed down from there before then doing another shock. So it was like, wow, yeah. OK, we're not, we're not letting up. It's uh, it's weird. But yeah, I, I just love um, as well Hans uh, Hans Gruber's speech. Again, Alan Rickman just has presence from the off. And, and this was his first movie, basically, is just even more impressive. I can see why, you know, he got a lot of accolades and praise off the back of the film. Uh, yeah. even to people that were critical of it. I do kind of love that the, the motivations of the bad guys are a little bit unclear and not super important at first, um, but it is yeah. kind of pointing out that they, they don't really have any righteous allegiances or anything. Ultimately, the result is just they're greedy and they wanted to rob someone, <laughs> um, which, you know, cool. <laughs> awesome. It's a, it, it avoids a lot of uh, potential pitfalls, I guess. Uh, looking at you, Rambo 3, where he's helped by the you know future taliban but yeah yeah that's <laughs> was it license license to kill where that happens as well yeah exactly but oof, i do love that they completely undercut that in the scene again later but we don't have to do dot around but later when he's like i demand you free like all these these people in northern ireland and this asian dawn group and then he discovers the phone i just heard about them in time magazine yeah. <laughs> he's got no allegiance whatsoever um and even his like former terrorist group have disowned him and he's been expelled from them. It's revealed on the news, you know? Yeah. So, uh, in terms of Christmas watch, there's a little mini Christmas tree in the control room. Got to keep up, uh, keep up the Christmas watching. Keep it going. It's a really good scene when, um, when they are uh, talking with Takagi and it's kind of, again, the tension of like, you, you've seen it a million times and they, I think they play on the cliche of like when him, him saying, you're just going to have to kill me. You don't. You still don't expect that that's yeah. going to literally be what happens. One thing that's weird about the scene that I didn't know until reading about it afterwards is that you have to be shown John's point of view and see that he doesn't get a clear shot at any point of Gruber because otherwise the scene later when he's pretending to be a hostage with the American accent would never have worked. And I was like, oh, yeah, that would have completely... And apparently that's all a reshoot yeah. because they realised, like, oh, crap. Yeah, exactly. It didn't even occur to me that they, he should really have seen him down there. And apparently, like I said, it was a reshoot because at points it, it was um, 
the story goes that somebody heard Rickman doing an American accent in like the you know catering trailer or whatever and was like Ooh, we'll, we'll write this into the film as this idea but at that point they'd already filmed the scene where he kills Takagi and McLean had watched and it was like well that kind of blows things doesn't it so, so as I said they reshot it and made sure that you yeah. see his point of view that he's obscured the entire time so I was like well that's clever but I wouldn't even have noticed apparently and I mean that's why it's a good film you get that caught up in it you, you don't notice those things no not at all no it's good and it's yeah that's how the film's able to grab you and even fool you on a couple of occasions I think as well so um and but again talking about like how tightly plotted it is and credit to the writing it, it sets up the ticking clock narrative that you get in a lot of these movies but it's cleverly done by like there's seven layers of security to get through so they have to do that rather than like waiting for an escape or anything so it makes logical sense in a lot more of a, of a narrative yeah. way um and again related back to like McLean being the everyman I do like that he doesn't like he more or less lets Takagi get killed um, because he couldn't do much about it and then even has the argument with himself, which, yeah, nobody really talks to themselves and it's a bit of a cinematic trope, but I do kind of like that he at least argues with himself about why didn't you do something? Oh, I would have been killed too, you know, and so you have that out through the character. <laughs> That's when you get the setup, of course, that we've got the difficult seven flare of security to get through eventually that we'll get to, but again, that's uh, that's a bit of a, a deus ex machina when we get there, unfortunately, but not to worry. I said he sees the the sirens and stuff in the distance and he's like oh yes come on come on oh i can i'm gonna what's it <laughs> because it's fire engines he's, I'm, I'm gonna kiss your dalmatian and then he just sees them turn around and go away and he's oh you stupid motherfuckers <laughs> and then as i think the only hint you get that anything's <laughs> happened is that when the guy comes in he goes the fire's been called off so you can come out no one's gonna help you and i was like oh okay fair enough <laughs> but uh yeah <laughs> again it's cliche but i kind of love it the way that it's it's funny and just really well uh well scripted when he's like kicking the crap out of the guy and the dude's like you won't do anything you're a policeman policemen have rules and he's like oh yeah so so my uh, superiors keep telling me oh no so my chief yeah, keeps telling yeah, me just not like captain. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> And uh, <laughs> didn't even occur to me that he would naturally be looking for a pair of shoes. But the fact that it takes the time to be like, oh, you know, millions of terrorists in the world, I'd kill one with, with feet smaller than my sister so the shoes don't fit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, and I love that. I, lo I love little things like that, like you see in that. It is little, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Because normally you watch these movies and you watch these TV shows and they take someone behind the, the, the wall or the corner, beat them up, steal the clothes and get on with the next point so when you see someone and they beat someone up and they're actually the wrong size clothes yeah. i know it's a, it's just a minor thing but i love it i love things like that just look, these little points that's i mean it's it's not what i would call realistic realistic in any sense but it just adds that little touch that you would think yeah knowing my look i don't get in the guy with the the, the, the you know the shirt <laughs> that's too tight yeah or the shoes that don't fit yeah, absolutely. But it, it adds to character as well. You because know what I mean? The, the John's like... We've all been John McClane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, the, not all our days like that, but we've had these days. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, that is that is the ultimate bad day, is the movie's uh, point, I guess, isn't it? But uh, that's why I think it gets increasingly ridiculous the more times it happens to him, you know, by the fifth time. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so as I say, the next scene is, uh, it's a big pivotal moment for Christmas Watch and for the film itself because John spies a kind of Santa doll with a little hat on and uh, uses it to dress up the corpse that he's just 
accidentally broken the neck off um so that he sends it down in the uh the elevator or lift if you're english <laughs> and uh it opens up and you get that really famous uh, shot of the guy with the uh, in it's written in what i presume is blood and it says now i have a machine gun ho 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 so yes oh, oh, oh. <laughs> exactly so you can't tell me that that's not christmas he come on he's wearing a santa yeah. hat and it says yeah but i love that he, he's you know he's not really he, he's Gets a bit more cagey about it, but at this point he's just like, "Oh, I've killed the guy, and he had a machine gun, so now I've got one, so I'm be scared." Kind of thing. I was like, "Oh, that's that's one of the rare times that he is that kind of cocky action hero," but I still kind of love it anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, and you and you and you you root for him at this point because you think, "Oh, he's leveling up. He he, yeah. he, could, he could actually do this." Yeah, I think that yeah, exactly. That might be that might be the point. You're right. Is that it's at this point you're like, "Oh, he's he's getting." Stronger and better, and he's he's gonna do it, kind of thing. It is cliche as heck, though, that um, the guy that he kills has a brother that's in the terrorist group. That's like now it's just a personal vendetta. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. bless you. Sometimes you do fall into these kind of eighties action film type cliches, don't you? But you know, yeah. it gives you some good moments. But as a credit, as a credit to the uh, how how to me how good the script is and how mm. good the direction. Is. Even the minor characters, even the 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 generic bad guys the ones that don't have a speaking role you kind of pick up on their character just mm. from like the the glances that they, like you know those two that's in the lift with uh good enough and they give each other a, a glance and things like that you, you, you kind of pick up on the on the characters that don't speak it's it's the characterization is very very good to me for, for an action film normally they're just cannon fodder yeah I agree with you on that one, absolutely, uh, yeah. But I also love that, as much as it is a cliche idea, the thing that I like about it is that it feeds into the the menace of Hans Gruber, that he's like, look, we'll do this, and then you can you know, search the rubble for a more you want, but in the meantime, we're going to stay calm and we're going to stick to the plan. And I was like, okay, that's fair enough. So the, the kind of henchman is relegated to personal vendetta status, and the lead guy is still menacing and like, yo, I don't even care. I'm yeah. just going to steal the money and do off and kill a bunch of people, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's good yeah. on that level. <laughs> it sets up like different little plot arcs within the film itself, and it, yeah, and it's and it's all the better for it. Yeah, but even to you know his his brother was killed, but at that mm. point when you didn't know he was his brother, and he comes in and he's trying to get all the wiring sorted while McLean's on the phone to Argyle, and mm. you see that tension between him good enough because while he's mm. doing the wiring, enough just comes in with a chainsaw and just cuts through the entire yeah the pipes or whatever. Yeah, I did make a note of that because I was like, that gives you everything you need to know about this character to start with, which is that he's just a blunt instrument, basically. He's like, exactly, yeah. I'm just gonna. But you see that little conflict be. between the, the the bad guys, and normally yeah. in these action movies, that would have to you'd, you'd have to have some exposition for that. Like, you did that to me. You don't just see people. Yeah. Well, you you didn't back then. You didn't just see people bickering between each other as if they do know each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and there's a couple of scenes that I'll get to later with that as well, where the, the bad guys have their moment to to get a bit of character and, and do some cool stuff as well. But yeah, um, where was I? So yeah, again, it's a little thing, but I do love the fact that the way that John navigates like where he's been and stuff is by eyeballing a little dirty calendar that one of the uh, presumably like construction workers or whatever has pinned to a locker. <laughs> yeah, so that's how he knows he's retracing his steps and stuff because he like touches the nudie woman on the calendar. Like that is just oh, chef's. <laughs> His level of world building right there. I absolutely adore the radio transmission when he gets to the roof. The bad guys can hear it, but 
the woman at the dispatch or whatever is having none of it and like, oh, you're called 911. This is for, you know, an emergencies only. And then that great line, no shit, lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Which is brilliant. Yeah. That's John McLean right there, isn't it? But uh, yeah, awesome. So then we introduce my probably favorite character of the movie, which is uh, Sergeant Al Powell. Uh, again, cliche as heck that he's got a pregnant wife and, you know, he's got a, his own motivations and his own yeah. backstory, but I still kind of love it anyway. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that he's he's obsessed with Twinkies that he's buying tons supposedly for his wife and then later on, he just has out of nowhere. And again, it could have stopped the film dead, but has a conversation about it. Oh man, this million year old Twinkie, what's in it? And then just lists the ingredients in a Twinkie to him. Yeah. It's so weird, but yeah. Yeah. He's a he's such a good character, Al. Al, you yeah. you 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 root for him right from the word go, and you don't normally do. get that. Sometimes, sometimes there's there's that this this little tweak or that little, and you just think, oh, not sure. But he, yeah. again, again, I'm going back to everybody in this film just plays their role so well. Absolutely, and one of the films the things that the film's been praised for, and which I kind of did, if sort of retrospectively realize as well, is how the treatment of race is kind of um, is a non-issue. That two of the biggest heroes in the movie are Al and Argyle, who kind of help him and, and save the day and whatever. Um, but even a couple of terrorists are kind of people of color, and it's never made a huge deal out of or anything. Yeah. Um, it's it's just kind of it's it's just there and it's just a thing, and they're never classed as less capable of being evil or good or anything. So. But yeah, I love that Al is just not your stereotypical action hero either. In as much as that John McClane's not like steroids and muscles and stuff, you know, Al is as much the hero of the movie and he's kind of an overweight, you know, desk jockey cop, but hey, yeah. he still gets his moment to shine, you know? So Yeah. He comes across as, you know, that that classic underdog. So hmm. that later on in the movie, you really do you you kind of cheer for him. Hmm. Completely. Uh absolutely. So yeah, getting into the next scene, it's probably the the most famous, well, one of the most famous scenes of the movie because it's just all spectacular action as he's kind of McLean's on the roof getting chased and shot at and goes through the fan and then back to the little nudie calendar and uh, it's it's a little moment in the middle of all this like chaotic action, but I love that he tries to work out how deep the elevator shaft goes by just kicking the vent cover off and then listening until he hears it actually yeah. clatter on the floor. I was like, that's again, that's stopping things for a little moment, but it's so important for character to show that he's like smart enough to realize these things and to also give us a moment of like these are the stakes uh and it's so tense when he starts scaling down but he's using like the gun strap and the guns like almost buckling giving way within yeah. the, the the lift doors and stuff and i was like oh this is this is intense but again i was reading as well that um the fall that he kind of has to grab onto a lower vent was completely accidental and it was because the stunt man fell performing the stunt oh, really? um but they yeah, but they kept it because they're like, oh, that, that fits John McLean, you know, unlucky, <laughs> tries to do this, fails on the first attempt and then gets lucky and catches a sort of lower down vent. So what the heck, we'll just keep it in. And I was like, that's awesome. Was supposed man. to just reach for the ledge and grab it? Yeah, he was supposed to just swing across, grab the ledge and, and get there kind of first time and be fine. So yeah, it's actually, like I said, oh, it's an accident. Wow. Oh, the that man fell much better then. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. I mean, like you say, happy accidents that kind of add to a film. It's great, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, and some of the most iconic lines, of course, when yeah. he does get in there and he's uh, he's getting in there and he, he, you know, Hans wants him just neutralized, but he starts crawling through the vents and he's like, you get the lines of like, get together, we'll, we'll come to the coast, get together, have a few laughs. And now I know what a TV dinner feels yeah. like. <laughs> Again, dated, yes. but still pretty amusing. Um, yeah. I, I don't I do like the, the, the number of quotable lines from this film are just 
It's immense, it's isn't like it? Yeah. I think that's the thing as well, the cultural impact that the film has, because I remember like quotes from it turning up in everything from like Brooklyn Nine-Nine to Family Guy to whatever. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, that's from Die Hard. I remember that, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> and uh, what was it? Where was I? Yeah, again, just switching on sort of film critic brain for a moment. I love that um, when they're sort of supposed to be moody scenes of tension, you often get like smoke and steam just going on its own way and kind of covering and obscuring. And that is something that um, I think it was DeBont again, but whoever it was that was responsible was like, we just let these things happen. It wasn't pre planned. It wasn't like we have smoke machines and whatever. It was using the environment to your advantage and letting things be a bit more naturalistic in that way, uh, which really helps. And uh, yeah, I like that um, you're left in no doubt how John's being kind of trailed by the bad guys because you just see all the splatters of blood that he's leaving behind as well, which is like yeah. understandable, really. But yeah, uh, and uh, how tense and frustrating is the scene though when Al's investigating and John's just like at the top window, like, come on, dude, who's driving this car, Stevie? Wonder. <laughs> yeah, oh, when you, when, when you see him driving away the first time you watch it, you see him drive away, you think, no. And it's not until yeah. the body hits. Yeah, exactly. But that's such a good one. I mean, the, the fact that they they take the time to build that tension by having him go in there and then the fake uh, sort of guard, like, I thought you'd be listening to me and you're calling me and, oh, I've got money on Notre Dame in this game. And, uh, you know, you're oh, slowly yeah. following Al and you're like, the, he's going to find something he's going to, and he's like, oh, screw this, I'm going. <laughs> yeah, the really Lewis guard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, as you say, that at that point you're so deflated, you're like, oh, he's he's gone, what an idiot. And then you just get the body landing on his car in the sheer yeah. shock and the fact that again it's it's zero to a hundred the way he's like, Oh man, I'm being fired at what's going on? And then everything just goes to absolute shit. <laughs> Which is great. And then we and, get that uh, other classic line, the uh Welcome to the party, pal. Welcome to the party, pal. I love it. Absolutely. As he's kind of looking through the smashed window. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's such a good movie. But yeah, that, then we get the scene that I was alluding to earlier when we're talking about like even the henchman having a little bit of character, which is when he's uh, McLean's in the room and the guy runs in and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not, I didn't mean to. He's like, put the gun down. I will, but I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And then, then another guy runs in behind him. He's like, Doc tries to shoot him. McLean shoots him. The other guy starts getting up on a table, getting all cocky, like, oh, when you have a chance to kill someone, do it. And then does just <laughs> shoot up to the table and give it. <laughs> Thanks for the advice, pal. You know? <laughs> it's, just, it's so so clever and so well-written and just well-rounded, I think. So it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do like that yeah. when, he, when he does do that, he, he's... You know, it is what you'd say. You you would say something, you know, thanks for the advice. You wouldn't come out with these corny one-liners, one of these, you know, quips that you would find in what were Derry Gurr in action movies at the time. Yeah, like uh, the, the Schwarzeneggers and stuff of the moment, you know, let off some steam yeah. or whatever it is that he's on. Yeah. But, yeah. It's cool, it's cool. But, yeah, I just love that um, Al, Al basically becoming as kind of frustratedly blase as john when he's like these guys have turned my car into swiss cheese <laughs> you know? it's just colorful metaphors all the way i love it and i do love that hans gruber just remains completely calm as there's like you know dozens of cop cars pulling up and he's like that's fine we knew it was gonna happen it's just accelerated the timetable a bit it's like this dude just does not get fit does he <laughs> well he's, he, he comes across as just cool and calculated and there's there's no wonder he got such recognition for this Absolutely, because it comes off as so threatening and menacing that you just cannot phase him. He's a complete sociopath, you know. Um, 
<clears throat> but again, switching back to Christmas watch for a second, you do get a Merry Christmas from the fake guard as Al does uh, initially leave, and Al does sing the first few uh, verses of Let It Snow. So, yeah. Just to remind us that it is still Christmas. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, then we get, of course, because John's on the radio, you get John and Hans having their conversation where he reveals kind of the, the knowledge and that he has the detonator. And I love how cheeky kind of McLean gets to him, you know what I mean? And then, as you said, feeding into the Americana uh, cliche type ideas, maybe is that, the, you know, you're just another American that's seen too many uh, cowboy movies and, you know, I'm partial to Roy Rogers myself. Oh, you can't win, Mr. Cowboy. Yeah, well, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's great. Um, slight uh, detour story I have about this is just the many variations on that, that race that have had to be uh, sort of come up with to fit around, like, TV screenings of Die Hard. Oh, I remember obviously, that. <laughs> obviously, I remember you can't really... <laughs> Can you remember what specific one? There's a couple of hugely important was it, was ones. Was one called Muddy Funster or something? <laughs> Very probably um, the the two uh, yeah the two most famous ones I'm aware of is um, Yippee Kaye Mr Falcon which makes no sense or slightly more colourfully Yippee Kaye Melon Farmer which melon is almost farmer. better <laughs> Melon Farmer what the hell <laughs> it makes no sense whatsoever but it is brilliant when, isn't it? when you sent me a message you've just explained one when you sent me a message earlier and you said Yippee Kaye Mr Falcon. Thinking, yeah. What the hell is that about? That was the kind of, yeah, that was the TV, uh, you know, Emmy or whatever rating version that the American networks used to always show. Was oh He God. was dubbed over Yippie Kaye, Mr. Falcon. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> I love it. Um, this is, again, not really related to this film, but if you have a chance, if you have the DVDs or Blu-rays of the Cornetto trilogy from Edgar Wright, um, he has as a special feature on them. He has like the dubbed over versions of more of the strong scenes and the things that they used for the scenes when they're kind of blaspheming or cussing or whatever. And there's like extended runs of what they actually used. And some of them are absolutely hilarious. So <laughs> just endless scenes of a poorly dubbed uh, like Simon Pegg just going, oh, cheese and rice. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I remember that. Did you? Uh, I'm, I'm digressing here. I don't mean to. But, uh, That's okay. The TV version of Ghostbusters. I never did know what was that. Uh, they cut out the the blowjob ghost. Scene. Oh well, obviously the blowjob ghost yeah. would go, yeah. <laughs> but the the entire exchange later on when they're in the mayor's office. And, oh, uh, this man has no tickets. The best part of the movie. <laughs> he, he, uh, yeah, he, he, when he says uh, it was cut off by Dickless here, and mm. he says it was cut off by Wally Wick here, mm. and I'm I'm watching. I'm this I've seen it a couple of times in the cinema. Wally Wick. What yeah, the hell is Wally Wick? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's amusing, but uh, yeah. I was watching on Blu-ray, so I got the full uncut motherfucker experience. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, dear. Uh, yeah, again, it, it's at this point that we get introduced to kind of the creepy news guys and stuff, and I, I made a note of, like, is this a subplot too many, maybe? Because it just seems almost unnecessary. It's to give Holly her hero moment at the end, I suppose. But otherwise, it just feels like we're distracting from what's actually important and what's really happening. It um, does. And it William Atherton comes... does play a very, very good creep. Well, well again, speaking about Dickless, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does. And uh, but again, at this point, you've already—I don't know if you've established them—but by the end of the film, you've already got you know the dude from the Breakfast Club, who's uh, like Al's boss, who's being a dick, and the two FBI agents who are you know complete Johnson assholes. 
Johnson and Johnson, no relation. Yeah. <laughs> so, I but, love uh, some of the some of the lines. I mean, I love Paul Gleason. He always yeah. plays things really dry in uh, this and uh, trading places. I just love the whole thing. Again, I'm digressing, and I don't mean to jump ahead, but no, no, go for it. When the FBI guys blow up, and he's lying, well, we're going to need a couple more FBI guys, I guess. Just the <laughs> I way, made a note of that, yeah. Yeah, just the way he <laughs> delivers that. I just want to. I mean, he's been an asshole all the way through, but I just want to. I, I wanted to high five the actor for the way he delivered that line. <laughs> It's the blase way it's done as well. That's the thing that makes it because it it not that the line itself is isn't funny, but the way he delivers it is well. We guess we're gonna need a couple of FBI guys. <laughs> it's just yeah. he seems so sincere and so sort of oop, they're gone. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but again, yeah. the script. I I don't know how many drafts it went through, but the, the, to me, apart from you know a couple of scenes that we said like the exposition, the minor characters, even their lines are really good. Like I mean hmm. I'm. I'm probably biased because uh, he's my favourite character. But early on, when the phone gets cut off, and Argyle just looks at the phone and just says, "You know the number, use it," and just puts it down and just carries on partying. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that scene, but yeah, yeah, okay, awesome, that's cool. And there's a, there is another line. I'm not going to mention it yet, but there is a line that oh. I've heard for the first time today in all these years of watching it, and oh, it's sweet. just. It it just it blew me away. I just thought, how ludicrous is it that I've missed this all this time? But I'll 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 go into that when we get to that point. That's fair enough. And I'll I'll bring something up here. Then it's a little, it's very slightly ahead, but not by far. Which is that um one of the reasons again when I was reading about the film that there's a lot of kind of, I guess reality to the the minor characters and stuff is that they were encouraged to improvise bits and pieces, even if they were like you know henchman number four or whatever. Um, yeah. so I absolutely had no memory of and bust out laughing at the kind of uh, the Asian looking bad guy when he's like, he sets up shop and then he just eyeballs like the, the chocolate the bar like five or six times and then steals it. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, and when I read that that wasn't scripted, it was an improvisation by the actor. I was like, oh, that is legendary. I hope oh, that guy got awesome. extra pay <laughs> for that day. You know? because normally up until that point, you'd just seen him as this like generic Asian thug in things yeah. like Big Trouble in Little China and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So when I saw that, I, oh, I didn't know that was improvised. Yeah, no, I didn't until I read it, and I was like, that is genius that he just improvised that, and that the director was like, yeah, leave it in. Why not? It's funny. You know? <laughs> but uh, I also like the fact, then... I don't know if you noticed, one of the thugs turned out, turned up in uh, in Ghostbusters 2. The guy who plays Vigo's in this film somewhere as well, one of the thugs, I think. So <laughs> Is that who you're talking about? I had no idea it was him until I read it. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so again, we get a lot of kind of like introducing us to a bunch of jerks between the news dude and uh, Paul Gleason's, um, you know, the cop boss chief character, whatever you want to call him. Um, but I do love that it re-emphasizes kind of Al's hero status and that he's the one smart enough to pick up on that John's a cop, not a bartender. <laughs> you know, that he, he gets that hunch and stuff. And uh, yeah, but the fact that that's kind of intercut with Holly getting a chance to be a bit of a hero and like giving as good as she gets back to Hans with like, oh, you put me in charge when you killed my boss. I'd, I wouldn't like to do this because too close to you and whatever. The fact that Holly gets a moment of, of, of agency, as it were, but it's just to do women's duties because it's very much like there's a pregnant lady that needs a, a couch and you need to start taking us to the bathroom. And I was like, oh, she could have got more to do than just like, this is the woman's role kind of stuff, I guess. But yeah, maybe that's just me being harsh. I'm wondering if that's intentional that... Apart yeah. from John and Holly and Al, the majority of people around them are 
you know, they're either idiots or they're just <laughs> wankers, basically, to put not too fine a point on yeah. it. And I wonder if that was intentional to just reinforce yeah. how heroic the flawed people are that take center stage. It's almost like that idea from the horror movies, isn't it? Where it's like everything's completely ineffectual apart from the, the lead. Everyone else is stupid or, you know, incompetent or just a, a jerk that's hindering you in some way. Um, but I think it also, yeah. it's it's to keep it humorous and light because like you say, it's even the ones that, are, that you might think are vicious or evil are kind of like amusing with it. There's a dark comedy to them. Yeah. Um, it's like when the when the uh, the FBI guys, I'm Agent, you know, I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. No relation. <laughs> Absolutely. I was reading as well that the reason it's the black Agent Johnson that says that is because they, they were scared it was racist if the white guy had said it. I was oh, like, yeah. really? That's a little bit too worrying over nothing, you know. But fair yeah. But talking about them, and again, it skips forward a little bit. But my favorite line of theirs is just, uh, "This reminds me of uh, Saigon." Ha ha! I was in junior high, dipshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little moment that has nothing to do with anything, but it's it's you know it's taken down the kind of Vietnam War movies or whatever of the period, and that machismo was like, yeah, that's in the past, you know. Forget. Um, so yeah, it's great. Next scene is, uh, well, first of all, uh, you get a Christmas watch because the guy starts to quote, "'Twas the night before Christmas as the cops are coordinating their response. But this is where they kind of get their armored RV uh, and they're like, um, the bad guys are running like rocket launches and stuff around and you get that epic like fireball explosion as he shoots the, the armored car. Um, and a brief moment of John like trying to negotiate, I suppose, with Hans and saying like, look, look you've made your point, let them back off. And Hans is just brutal and having none of it. And like, nope, fire again. <laughs> Uh, which reinforces his like dickishness, I guess. Um, yeah. But again, even after that, when it's it's really kind of gruesome and horrible that you see the like wounded cops and stuff. But a moment later, you get the news guy watching the fireball, just going like, "Tell me you got that," which again apparently was improvised. <laughs> which was like, oh, that, wow. those are key moments that undercut the tension that just weren't in the script at, at all, you know. <laughs> uh, but it's it's like there's also that line. He says, "Well, well, the quarterback is toast." And you know he's yes. an asshole. You know you you, yeah. you 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 despise him, but you can't help but kind of find that little delivery funny. Yeah, that was definitely improvised as well. That was the other thing that I'd read by that uh, particular actor. That he's just, but as you say, it feeds into like he's just being a jerk at this point, isn't he? But yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, again, I, in the midst of all this, nobody really loses their dark humor because, like, when John blows up the entire floor with C four and everything and that's when you get the news guy being yeah did you get that <laughs> he asks like al is there a fire down there and al's like no but it's gonna need a paint job and a shitload of screen doors, <laughs> screen doors. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's great and then again just the interplay in the scripting but the scene the scene even though they're not in person but on the radio between like uh, deputy chief uh whatever his name robinson and john where he's like listen we don't want your help but uh, yeah look i'm not the guy who got butt fucked on national tv Dwayne. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's great and then even uh al like how are you doing john i'm feeling pretty fucking unappreciated <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I'll, I'll again it's relatable thing. Yeah, I love that whole that whole scene where he says uh, where Al's talking to his uh, talking to Paul Gleason, and he just says, "Why don't you wake up and smell what you shovel in?" Yes, yeah. and there's not I get I, I look there's not one person on the planet that's not wanted to talk like that to their boss at some point. Oh yeah, or other. <laughs> absolutely. 
I love it. And I love the, the fact that he still stands on the ground because he's like, look, if you want to leave, you can go. And he's like, no, sir, I'm right where I want to be or something like that. You yeah, know, it's like, you can drag me away. Yes, exactly. It's awesome. This is the, the scene, of course, where Alice tries to play the hero, thinks he's going to be clever with his cocky negotiation tactics. Um, again, apparently, uh, Hans Bubby, I'm your white knight, was another improvisation uh, by the dude who played Alice, yeah. uh, which, again, it's become such an iconic line within itself. And... Uh, this scene's just great. One thing I didn't pick up on until I was reading about it is, and again, this is testament to the film, that it doesn't make this joke on screen, but you can make it for yourself. That um, I thought it was just product placement when they're pouring a Coca-Cola for Ellis. Um, but apparently the idea behind it is that Ellis asked the bad guys if they had any Coke and they misunderstood. Oh, which is genius. No, me neither. But I was like, oh, that makes... Because you see him snorting at the start of the movie and naturally, you know... It makes sense. And I was like, why is it so prominently showing you this Coca-Cola like it's a huge deal? And I was like, oh, when I read it, I was like, of course, this makes such sense now. But it's a joke that the film doesn't bother, like, hammering you over the head to make. It's just there if you happen to see it, you know? Again, Which I never tweaked. <laughs> no, I mean, <neither. laughs> but now you'll know when you watch that scene back, yeah. you'll be like, ah. <laughs> but again, great, with, with Ellis, all the way through, the way he's been acting, he's, he's inherently dislikable. But you can't mm. help but feel sorry for the guy at the end, even after he's been such an arrogant dick. Well, yeah, it's it's testament to the film not being as cliche that he does. He ultimately almost does a kind of a right thing because he doesn't sell out Holly. And that shocked me. I was like, wow, he's the, the film's making pains that he's the bad guy. He's a jerk and whatever. But he's like, no, I told him you were my friend, John, and I invited you to the party and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's actually pretty fucking noble guy you know yeah uh, normally in that you would have seen a character like that ship him at the shop him at the first opportunity absolutely it would have been like i told you that you know i told them your hollies whatever but even the fact that again it 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 raises the stakes to the sheer futility that ellis just gets killed anyway despite john trying to like undo his nobility and like tell him you don't know me and whatever he gets killed anyway and then the sheer menace of hans like i'm just going to start shooting people because sooner or later i will reach somebody you care about it's like oh man this is it's so tense it's just those moments that keeps you on the edge of your seat i think so yeah it's (laughs) awesome um so I've, I've mentioned a few of the things that uh, we've basically talked about, the, the standoff with Al standing his ground and, uh, you know, Hans faking a bunch of terrorists released. Uh, then we get to a bit where it's uh, basically them discussing they need the seventh uh, security lock breached, but it's going to take a miracle. And Christmas Watch, the line from Hans, it's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, the way um, it is that. It's, it's so light and airy. It is. It's great. But I love that. Again, I shouldn't necessarily love it because it almost seems a bit too easy. But the fact that, again, you cut through the Merry Christmas graffiti when you see the the guys on the power lines. But the idea that the FBI following the playbook is what ultimately screws them over because the seventh sort of security seal can't be broken unless the power is just cut, which is the first thing the FBI would do on the on that situation. Yeah. So they just completely play into it. And it is it's when Hans give you the FBI. Exactly, the way he delivers that light and everything as well, 100%. So, yeah, it's great. Um, so then we should we should probably talk about the scene, as I said, where Hans meets John and kind of improvises the American voice. And again, the clever direction of showing you that he'd seen the name Billy, whatever, on, on a board somewhere. Um, another thing that I didn't pick up on until I read about it, because again, the film doesn't make it clear, but supposedly the first indication John gets that this isn't uh, this guy isn't being fully honest is that he offers him a cigarette, obviously. Uh, and Hans holds it the way a European would, rather than the way an American would, like between the fingers. Oh, I would didn't pick up on that. On that. No. <laughs> would never have gotten that at all. Over my head. 
Yeah, I mean, it would. I don't smoke or anything. I don't really know these things. But I still thought it was, yeah. It was still a clever turn. I was like, oh, was he always just kind of suspicious of him or whatever? But then when you read that might have been a turning moment, I was like, okay, that's cool. That's kind of clever. I'll give you that. So this The the only thing that takes me out of this film is uh, Rickman's American accent in that part. See, I think it's better than his German accent, personally. Oh, no, I'm... You know, when I first heard him speak, when I first heard his uh, his actual accent after seeing Die Hard, I was shocked. <laughs> Fair enough. I think he just he to me when he's trying to do the the German accent that he's, the character is meant to be, he just sounds so English and clipped. But maybe that's because I'm so used to seeing Alan Rickman in so many other things that that's what you kind of subconsciously listen for, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. I I didn't mind his American accent. I guess as I said, the fact that John sees through it is at least you know makes that less egregious um but i do still think it's a cool tense scene because again the film sucks suckers me into thinking like oh crap he's been fooled what's gonna happen here you know yeah uh, and the really you know the cool moment of like uh it's, it's unloaded hans what do you think i'm stupid <laughs> you know he does uh, play okay. against the type of these action films that you've seen so far and i think that's why it works so well because you've seen you've seen variations on these scenes a hundred times in the last few yeah. years uh-huh. and now all of a sudden all the scenes that you think are going to play out one way play out the exact opposite and you're left kind of reeling thinking where's this going to go mm. yeah exactly which i love and i love that um you know that when it took me a while because again i didn't really remember the specific of the plot but i was like why is he so obsessed with these detonators again i can't really remember but the fact that it's like there's almost some kind of sinister cleverness to the idea of like, well, the, the point was to blow up the roof, level the building, because we'll have stolen so much money that they would otherwise like track us down and chase us forever. But this way they'll think we're dead. And you yeah. know, so much for the, as, as, as regards to the kind of collateral damage, who gives a shit, you know, we're rich and we're on a <laughs> beach somewhere. So I said, oh, wow, that's, again, it adds to their characters of kind of why they're threatening and why they're just such jerks, I guess. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's good, isn't it? But yeah, <laughs> uh, you get, of course, the next scene, which is the news uncovering the McLean family, which, like I said, it seems to stop the film dead a little bit. But I get that it's there so that Holly can punch uh, William Atherton at the end and you get a punch the end moment for her, which is it, it is great when it yeah. happens. Um, it really hurts home that scene, just how much of a loathsome wretch he is. Absolutely. But it also... Again, it feeds into Hans's character, I suppose, as well as that function, because now he knows exactly who John McLean is and who Holly is to him. And that's when he says it himself, doesn't he? You know, oh, you're nothing but petty robbers. Well, I'm moving up to kidnapping, so you should be nicer, you know? So Yeah. Um, and I also like the fact that when uh, Hans sees the broadcast, it doesn't yeah. hammer the point home. It doesn't hit you over the head with it by, by the kids saying, and my dad, John. He just gathers who John is just from the look on Holly's face, and he tweaks well, it. Lift up around. the photo, doesn't he, and sees uh, something like exactly. that. Exactly, <laughs> it's not, yeah. you know, it's not pushed on you, and I like that. Awesome. Uh, again, another really cool moment, but again, it's so funny and I love it. Is when um, again I can't remember the bad guy's name. I think it's Carl comes down and like smashes the tray of glasses or whatever, and Holly's just like, "He's still alive. Only John can drive somebody that crazy." Yeah, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> loving it. Um, slightly less impressed with the way that they kind of again just shoehorned Al's backstory into the scene between him and McLean, like oh I accidentally shot a kid and I don't know how I can live with it and I was like it's it's almost poorly written but saved by the acting because Willis and uh, you know Reginald Bell Johnson are really good in the scene and again it gives you the moment at the end when 
uh, when Al gets the chance to, you know, pull his gun and shoot the guy and save the day, <clears throat> which is very punch of the air type moment. But I just think there might have been a more subtle way to drop this in than just out of nowhere in this yeah. conversation, you know. Um, yeah. As you say, though, the acting's good. And in that hmm. scene, it never fails. It never fails to make me wince when he's pulling those bits of glass out of his feet because you, he, he, you believe it. Well, yeah, apparently uh, Bruce Willis can't watch that scene because apparently he winces every time as well. But uh, it looks realistic to me. I tell you, I don't know whether it is or not. But yeah, it's it's uh, you get a real sense. Like I said, the fact that he crawls his way into that bathroom and he's so bruised and bloodied and cut up and picking glass from his feet. And you're just like, how is this dude still standing? You know? Yeah, it's, uh... I like that. I like the one towards the end where Holly sees him after he's been through all this and he just goes, hi, honey. As if, yes, as if it's yeah. nothing, but he sounds so weary and defeated. Yeah. You just can't help but laugh. It's another improvisation, that as well, by Bruce Willis. <laughs> I've read quite a lot of them, apparently, but yeah. Uh, speaking of annoying uh, things that I'm returning to, Christmas watch. <laughs> when they're going to cut the um, the power and they say, that's crazy, it's Christmas Eve, there's thousands of people. Uh, and, you know, the bad guys here, you get the triumphant use of the classical music and, and a quick Merry Christmas from them because it unlocks the seventh uh, the seventh seal, not to go all in, Mar Bergman. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and uh, again, I read that the composer, uh, Kamen, Michael Kamen, you said, uh, didn't yeah. want to use this classical music uh, because he said it's, it tarnishes it using it in an action-type movie, but he was convinced to do it by McTiernan because he pointed out its use in A Clockwork Orange uh, to underscore the uber-violence of the Droogs. Ah, um, I didn't know that. Is, I yeah. think it works incredibly well. It does, but yeah, I mean, uh, I can. I, I don't know if I can see his point. I guess came and you know, I, I wouldn't be so like pompous about it. But at the same time, if you think it doesn't fit the tone, then fair enough. But yeah, the fact that he you know convinced him uh, another master director used it to underscore violence and it's very effective that way. And then as you say, the way it's used here is just brilliant. It works. So yeah, the idea that they're gonna the FBI are gonna make them sweat, then send in the helicopters, and then it'll just blow them up and. You know, the tension of us, the audience, being one step ahead of everyone and like, oh, it's all going to go to crap. Um, but the fact that the film in the middle of all this stops for the chance for John to basically have his epiphany about, oh, I've never really said I'm sorry to Holly or whatever, which is probably my favourite scene, because I was like, this is huge character growth and a massive moment, but it's so subtle and underplayed and in the middle of a bunch of action. Um, yeah. Again, not many films will be brave enough, I think, to stop and do this for a few minutes, but... Yeah. And again, if that had been played by someone else, such as Schwarzenegger or Stallone, you wouldn't have bought it. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, let me see. So then, just getting skipping ahead, because there's a lot of stuff that we've, we've kind of been over. But yeah, we see on the news, everything we've already touched on, the, the kind of um, the Christmas wreath on the door is there, but the, the McLeans are celebrating, and then the little girl reveals to Hans who he is. Uh, all of a sudden, the the guy with a personal vendetta suddenly becomes an expert in kung fu when he's fighting John McLean. But <laughs> what the heck, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I've mentioned Holly taken hostage and uh, John looking for her, but then him kind of saving everybody to go down because he knows the roof's going to blow. Um, and how awesome is that? <laughs> the iconic scene when the chopper fires at John and he just grabs the fire hose and you know leaps off the top of the building while there's a huge explosion behind him. Which, yeah, and he's, he's tying it up on himself. And he's going, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I love it. But I love that as well, that it's the most heroic action hero type moment. And immediately afterwards, his, you, you cut to him and he's just saying, oh, please don't let me die. <laughs> it's like, yes, yeah. that's exactly what you would say in that situation. It's not like, oh, I'm so heroic and great. He's like, oh, shit, don't let me die from this. <laughs> <laughs> and again, when, when, he's, when he's 
pounding against the glass and his feet are hitting the glass and you're actually going, oh, God, no, his feet, because it's leaving those blood smudges all over mm. the glass. Yeah, and you know he's going to have to, like, break through to get in and it's like, ooh, at this point, the you know, it's, he's getting dragged over and whatever as well, so oof, it's a lot. Um, but, yeah, I do love as well the, the – it comes from nowhere, but the zoom cuts to the stationery and stuff that are going to be important for, like, that he's taped the gun to his back later. Yeah. And you know that he's going to he's gonna MacGyver some more shit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of cool um, this moment I, I can't skip over because you'll personally love it but the fact that Argyle gets his hero moment when he stops the, the hacker guy <laughs> yeah and just, he just punches him it, square and he looks so proud after he does it yeah absolutely uh, so yeah we'll we'll talk to there's only the one sort of climactic scene I guess or two but the face off with uh, with Hans which again so well directed the fact that it's a slow build uh, it all you know the introduction of McLean is in shadow and he's only lit by the flames uh, and, you know, he gradually reveals just how cut up and messed up he is. And you get the re reaction off Holly at first. Like, oh, God, John, what happened, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the, the fact that, again, it's a callback, but it's so well done. The whole, you're still a cowboy. Yeah, what was it you said? yippee ki -yay, motherfucker. And then, you know, the camera panning from back to behind John, showing the gun strapped to his back. And, you know, Duck Holly, happy trails, hands. <laughs> Shoots him out of the window. Uh, and, again, we've mentioned it, but unclipping. Chekhov's Rolex to yeah. save Holly and uh, send Hans to his doom. But I did have a brief story about this, uh, just as a quick detour as well, which is the look of surprise on Alan Rickman's face as he falls is genuine. Um, because oh, this yeah, film, I, I read about this. Yeah. You heard the story, yeah? Uh, yeah? It was filmed, obviously, against a green screen where he was falling like backwards onto a mattress. Um, but they were they said, like, we'll drop you on a count of three and then dropped him on two <laughs> to surprise him. So it is genuine. He said the director said you can't really fake that kind of shock. So there was a little bit of like, oh, crap, <laughs> so he just actually wasn't steeled and ready for it, um, which he I does, love. He, well. does, he does work so well. The look on his it face does. is priceless. Again, it's an iconic scene as well, and it's just great, isn't it? So, and uh, yeah, the, the slow pan down with the sparks and the kind of bearer bonds as calm settles in. And uh, yeah, you do get all the hero moments, but they do feel kind of earned. So, you get a quick, you know, I'm Holly McLean. You get Robinson being a bit of a fuck until the last guy emerges, and Al saves the day. And you get Holly punching the, the news guy. And as I said, one last note then, which is Christmas watch. Merry Christmas, Argyle. Heck, if this is your idea of Christmas, I've got to be here for New Year's. Yeah. <laughs> and then let it snow, please, of course. So, yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. So, which more or less, I think, concludes the the analysis of movie, unless there's anything that uh, you think we'd missed that you wanted to, to talk about? The, the the only thing that, like I said, that the line that I'd never heard until tonight, where yeah. uh, John's fighting with uh, with Carl at the end, you know, just before he wraps the chain around his neck and, and pushes yes, him yeah. off. Yeah. They're struggling and they're punching each other. And all of a sudden, John says, I'm going to fucking kill you and I'm going to mm. cook you and I'm going to eat you. <laughs> and that yes. just kind of, yeah, and that just kind of blew me away. I don't know. How have I never noticed that before? That's just absurd. I, yeah, I had heard that line, but I'd never really stopped and thought about it. But yeah, I guess it is kind of, it, to me, it was just his frustration of just seeing any old crap as he desperately struggles, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think it's kind of weird that that um Carl survives that kind of thing that it never it never occurs to him to check and he survives like being hanged horribly to give you that last yeah. shock moment but yeah it's earned and how the <laughs> hell did he get down <laughs> he's just that strong he just unwrapped the chain and dropped <laughs> yeah who cares two broken shins I don't give a shit yeah, exactly uh at that point I don't think you're supposed to mind but uh yeah awesome uh so yeah so just quickly then 
Um, I do have an audience uh, response section to get into, but beforehand, uh, and again, I've been talking about it throughout, and I said we'd answer the question, is it a Christmas movie? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Uh, so I'll come to you first, then DK, and ask, what are your thoughts on is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes. You either think it's a Christmas movie or you're wrong. <laughs> and what uh, what do you have to back up your uh, your stance then? If anything? Just, just, I don't know. Yeah, even despite, I know it sounds stupid and people are probably going to think, this guy's nuts. But th despite the killing, the explosions, the blood, mm. it feels like a Christmas movie. I mean, you, <laughs> Maybe you just, you, yeah. Yeah, you do get Christmas movies that are literally Christmas movies, and you don't walk away from them with the same feeling of Christmas as you do watching Die Hard to me. It's okay. quintessentially, you, I mean, yes, it's, you know, there's all the set dressing, there's the trees collapsing and, and all that mm. kind of stuff. But even though they hammer the point home, you just generally kind of, I, I, me personally anyway, I come away from it thinking, yeah, it's Christmas. Because I think a lot of people can re relate to Christmases and they're thinking, oh, Christmas, it's going to be a nice Christmas this year. And all hell breaks loose just prior to Christmas. <laughs> and and you, you kind of think, yeah, I can relate to that. He's having a bad day. Yeah. I think the fact that it ends with all the, all the powers of good, I suppose, triumphing in the very end and getting their heroic moments, I think, feeds into that as well. Because if it had ended with any one of those kind of subplots, you know, one of the heroes faring badly, it wouldn't necessarily be looked on as well. But yeah, I think, yeah, it ends in that way. So maybe that feeds into it. Um, yeah, it wouldn't have earned <laughs> it if, say, Al had, you know, bought it or yeah. something had happened to Holly. It, it, yeah, it yeah. did end on a very high note. And because of that, it, you do come away from it generally feeling enthused about life because you think, well, the bad people got what they deserved. The good people mm. got what they deserved. You know, even the reporter gets slugged in the face. The FBI guys <laughs> get blown up. The uh, the police chief gets kind of kind of put in his place. Yeah, and, he does. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the only three people to come through it relatively unscathed. I mean, the only what you would call an innocent party is mm. kind of Takagi at the start. Yeah, I guess. But, yeah. But yeah, then, that's, I suppose you know, that's but the then you're delving that's into too. what was his business practices and all that kind of thing. But other than that, yeah, the main three characters, you walk away thinking, yes. I think that's so early in the movie as well that you've almost forgotten, I suppose, not to sound callous about Takagi, so you don't really, you've never really had a chance to know him super no, well and anyway. I think, I think yeah. yeah, and I think it, it needed that, you know, while he may not necessarily have been an innocent, you needed that air of innocence about him mm -hmm. to, to set the ball rolling, to just show yeah. all these people. Because if these people had just rolled in, they shot the security guard, yeah, that's kind of callous. But to do mm -hmm. that to Takagi in such cold blood, which was, so, you know, it was set up, then mm -hmm. you come away thinking, oof, these people yeah, are... Um, yeah, well, I, I could understand the debate about is it a Christmas movie, because as I said, it was it was not in, intended to be. It was a summer blockbuster released in July. but And, you know, tonally, you could argue that it, it is in the ways that we just, just have explored. But, you know, it doesn't make Christmas its focus in the way that a lot of, you know, quote-unquote Christmas movies would. Um, but I think the season yeah. is too much of a focus to fully ignore. There's too many references, too many visual cues and things to... To completely brush off and just for the sheer cultural impact alone the fact that it's so regarded as a christmas movie by everyone you know whether it be 
as I mentioned earlier, Brooklyn Nine-Nine doing a Christmas episode that was basically a remake of Die Hard with robbers robbing someone and the cops having to stop them and lots of references to it being like Die Hard, uh, to the fact that you see countless memes this time of year on the social media of like, it's not Christmas until we see Hans Gruber fall from Nakatomi Plaza. And so, yes. yeah, for that reason, uh, for that reason alone, if nothing else, I think, yes, you have to classify this in spite of what Bruce Willis says as a Christmas movie. So that's the debate settled. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, so I will briefly touch on the audience responses uh, before we talk about our own thoughts uh, and give our own conclusions and scores, if that's okay with you. Uh, DK, yeah, you know the, yeah. the drill, what we do is we give it um, yeah. sort of a brief paragraph conclusion, then a score out of five stars. Uh, so I said basically, um, go on then, another random film question. What are your thoughts, opinions on festive classic Die Hard? Is it a great movie, a top 10 action film, overrated, dumb fun? And the ultimate question, is it a Christmas movie? Uh, so Paul from MCU C2C, aka Dr. Oho, uh, says, having just watched it the other week for the first time, uh, I think it's well-deserving of its praise. It introduced much-needed humour and heart into the 80s man-with-guns action blockbuster, and it's a cracking good story. Agreed. Uh, at Dr. Twelfth says, Dumb, enjoyable fun. I remember sharing a house with an art film aficionado when I watched lots of art films with him. One day I brought him Die Hard, and after watching it, he just looked shocked and didn't say a thing. The next day he was watching it by himself <laughs> and taking notes. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Steve Wasling at Simmerad simply says one of the very best action movies ever. Uh, and T. Viorinen uh, says definitive 80s Christmas movie up there with Predator, Rambo, Commando, etc. Oops, I meant 80s action movie. Sorry. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so yeah, and uh, that will wrap up the audience response section. So uh, do you have a conclusion and a score out of five stars for me then, uh, DK? I'd, I'd agree with pretty much everything that they said. Mm. Uh, for the movie itself, I, I, it's, it is one of my favourites, so I'm obviously biased. Uh, so I've, I've got to give it five stars because I never get tired of watching. Awesome, awesome. <clears throat> That's fair enough. Well, uh, just to give you my two cents, I said it's the blueprint for an iconic action movie, although it's a little overlong and has some issues that we've touched on, like the music or some of the cliches and things. It's also incredibly well-written, tightly plotted and brilliantly acted. Uh, has absolute expert direction that adds up to a truly enjoyable and engaging experience. It's rightly famous with too many great moments to list and an overall sense of a genre classic that you can enjoy any time of year. <laughs> uh, and I said 4.5 out of 5 stars, just uh, yeah. just to touch off the, the perfect score. So, uh, yeah, so that obviously makes the overall podcast score for that 4.75 out of 5 for Die Hard. Uh, so, yeah. That will conclude this episode and this series of the podcast and our Christmas special. Uh, once again, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everybody out there who's listening. And uh, just remains for me to thank DK for joining me. DK, do you want to shout out any uh, projects or anything that you uh, that you have going on? Uh, none at the minute. None of the, everybody's already uh, loaded up with trying to buy things, so I'm not going to give them any yes. more of a burden. I'll just wish them <laughs> yeah. all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Hope it's a, a safe, a healthy, and a very stress-free one absolutely and i know that this is going on youtube and spotify and can be listened to anytime but if you're watching the premiere it'll be like two days before christmas so again happy christmas hope we're all not too stressed and we're looking forward to spending it with family and having a good time so that's that uh you can find me at iron mike wilson on twitter i'm just my name michael wilson everywhere else and the podcast is at podcast underscore screen as you can see on the screen there uh and 
Uh, I will be back in the new year with at least a couple of episodes. I know I have a uh, delayed Prometheus review to do, amongst other things. Uh, as to whether there'll be a full series, it'll depend on how well uh, these sort of first six episodes uh, go down and how well they pick up traction and stuff as things go on. But in the meantime, as I said, I hope we're all going to enjoy a great festive season. So uh, one last time, in the epic words of Arnie, I'll be back and Merry Christmas.